Well, good morning, everyone. How has your week been? Good? Well, I personally have had a fantastic week. Would anyone like to take a guess why? Yes, Shark Week. I feel so known. <laughs> yes, I have a very weird fascination with sharks. I love them. And every year, the Discovery Channel does a week long of programming of just all shark shows. So every night, Joel's like, do you want to watch something? And I'm like, uh-huh, sharks. Yep, I would like to watch some more shark shows. So I've had a great week. I was really trying to figure out how I could tie sharks to the tabernacle, but it was just too much of a stretch. So I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to open by telling you I've had a great week because it was Shark Week. Thank you, Lord, for creating sharks. So anyway, we are going to be talking about the tabernacle today. We started a series the week after Easter, and we are going to spend the, the rest of this year until leading up to next Easter working our way through the Bible, looking at the important events and characters beginning in Genesis 1, which we started that week after Easter, and we're just going to work our way all the way through. We are going to learn to see how the Bible is really a unified story that points us to Jesus on every single page. So right now, we're in a series called Longing for Rest, and we've been in the book of Exodus. Now, the book of Exodus, the first half is pretty exciting. The book of Exodus is where we find the story of Moses, and God calls Moses to deliver the Israelites from under oppression in Egypt. They had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and God, through miraculous, mighty works, leads the Israelites out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And last week, Brian talked about how they, they made their way to Mount Sinai, where God gave Moses the law and the Ten Commandments. And then he goes back down the mountain after he receives those Ten Commandments, talks with the people. They're like, we're in. Like, we're, yes to the covenant. We're going to follow God. And Moses goes back up the mountain. And he's back on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And while he's up there, God gives him a blueprint to construct the tabernacle. So this is where in your reading plan, you kind of start like mm, fighting through the mud a little bit. You're reading Exodus 25 through the end of the book, really. And it can feel a little weird, a little unconnected from our daily lives. Our Western minds read these instructions for constructing the taber tabernacle and kind of go, what? So I titled today's message, What's the Deal with the Tabernacle? And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the significance of the tabernacle and what it means for us today. But before we dive in, will you just take a minute and pray with me? God, thank you for our church family. Thank you that we have a place to come and gather and worship you together and open the Bible and learn about who you are and what you are doing in the world around us. God, this morning, as we look at the tabernacle, I just ask that you would open our eyes, that you would give us clarity of thought, that our hearts would be encouraged. God, I pray that I would be a clear communicator, that your spirit would work through me, and that you would be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the keynote verse where we're going to begin today is found in Exodus 25, and it's verse 8 and 9. And this comes at the beginning of this long block of speeches that God is making, delivering these instructions for building the tabernacle to Moses. And it says this, God is speaking. 
and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Now, this is super important. God's telling Moses, I want you to build a sanctuary, a holy, sacred space where I am going to dwell in your midst. This is revolutionary. If you study the cultures that were living around Israel at this time, if you look at their religious worship practices and what they thought about the gods that they worshiped, the gods were unpredictable and they were far away and they, you never knew where you stood with them. And here's Yahweh, the God of Israel, saying, I am actually going to dwell in your midst. I'm moving in. I am going to carve out a space and I am going to redeem it with my holy presence and I am going to live in your midst. So this is pretty incredible compared to what is other people's kind of imaginings about what the deities and God might be like. And this is where we start with God saying, hey, I'm going to move in. I'm going to dwell in your midst. And then God goes on to give Moses all of these instructions. And when you're reading it, you're kind of like, wait, what's going on? Like cubits and different kinds of materials and gold and very specific instructions. But what I want us to see, first of all, is that the way that God gave Moses the instructions to build the tabernacle reminds us of Eden. The tabernacle is actually echoing back to the Garden of Eden. So if you can rewind in your mind and think about Genesis 1 and 2, where God brings order out of chaos, and there's this beautiful poem about creation, and God makes man, and we're told that God places the man in the Garden of Eden. And in that garden, at the very center of the garden, is the tree of life. And that represents God's presence. It's this like place where heaven and earth overlap, this sacred space where God's presence dwells with his people. Now, we see mimics of this theme in the actual physical design of the tabernacle. I think it's easier to visualize this, so I have a, a slide to put up for you here showing you the physical design of the tabernacle. If you look on the left there, that outside circle, this represents the Garden of Eden. The outside square represents the dry land. And then inside of that, we have the land of Eden. It was an actual land area. Inside of that is the garden where God places Adam and Eve joins him. And then at the very center is the tree of life in the center of the garden. Now look on the, the right side of that slide, and this applies to both the tabernacle and the temple, which later replaces the tabernacle. In the temple, the outside square is the land of Israel or Jerusalem. In the tabernacle, that outside square represents the wilderness. And then the tab tabernacle was constructed with a courtyard that was the outer part of the tabernacle. And then you move in, and there's the holy place. This is where the priests did their daily work. And then at the very center of the tabernacle, and later the temple, is the holy of holies. So you can see how the actual design mimics the Garden of Eden. But that's not the only thing that reminds us of the Garden of Eden in the construction of the tabernacle. We also look back to Eden in the furniture and the decorations that were present in the tabernacle. 
I wish that we had time this morning to dive into everything because there are so many amazing things to learn, so much significance, but I just want to point out a couple of them to you this morning. First of all, the tree of life in Genesis 2-9 is reflected in the instructions that God gives Moses to build the lampstand. The lampstand in, uh, I think it's in Exodus 25, looked like a tree. It had all of these branches that were blossoming, coming out off of it. It very much was imaging the trees in the Garden of Eden. You will also find in the instructions that God gives Moses that they were to use cherubim to decorate both the curtains at the entrance to the tabernacle and also in the Holy of Holies, that center hot spot in the tabernacle, there were cherubim on either side of where the Ark of the Covenant was to be placed and reside. Now, if you think back, where else in scripture up to this point have we seen cherubim? We've seen them in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve do what's right in their own eyes, they disobey God, they take from the tree that God told them don't touch, And the result of that is that they're exiled from the garden. And we're told that cherubim guard the entrance to the hotspot, to the tree of life. So again, we're seeing this echoes back to Eden. And we miss this on our first reading, I think, because we don't have the context that the ancient Israelites had, but they weren't missing the significance of these things. And then the last thing I want to point out to you is the actual role of the priests versus the role of Adam and Eve in the garden. In Genesis 2.15, when God places Adam in the garden, he is commissioned to work and keep the garden. That's the phrase that is used. And if you fast forward to the book of Numbers, when the priest's role is being described, the way that they were to work in the tabernacle, it's the same phrase, to work and to keep the tabernacle. We also see this in the actual role that the priest was playing and that Adam and Eve were playing. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden represented God to creation as the image bearers of God, and they also represented creation before God. The same thing is true of the priests working in the tabernacle. The priests were to represent God to the people, and they also represented the people before God. That's important. We're going to come back to that here in a little bit. But what I want you to know about the tabernacle is that the Israelites, once once the tabernacle was constructed, we're told in Exodus 40 that God's glory filled the tabernacle, that the glory cloud of the Lord hovered over the tabernacle and his presence filled the tabernacle. So we have another hot spot, right, where heaven and earth overlap, just like in the garden, where God's presence is dwelling with his people. And the Israelites worshiped in the tabernacle for about 400 years until the time of King Solomon. Now, King Solomon built a permanent temple in Jerusalem, and that temple took the place of the tabernacle, but it was designed along the same principles. We're told in 1 Kings that in the same way that the glory cloud of the Lord hovered over the tabernacle and his presence filled the tabernacle, the same is true of the temple. So again, temple, tabernacle, sacred space where heaven and earth overlap and God's presence dwells. Well, the Israelites worshiped in Jerusalem at the temple until 586 before Jesus, 586 BC. The Babylonian empire had arisen to power and they conquered Israel. And Israel, the 
temple was razed to the ground. It was completely destroyed. Israel was taken into exile into Babylon, most of them, not everybody, but most of them. And they remained in Babylon for about 70 years. Then the king of Persia conquered the Babylonians and the king of Persia allowed some of the Israelites to move back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. But that second temple was never filled with the glory of God like the tabernacle and the first temple were. So the Israelites are longing for the day when God's glory would dwell in their midst like it did in the days of Eden, the tabernacle and the first temple. And it's into that scene that Jesus arrives, that Jesus enters the picture. The second thing that I want you to see in the tabernacle is that Jesus is greater than the tabernacle. He is greater than the temple. In the gospel of John, John was one of the apostles, and in his gospel account, the very first chapter opens with John describing Jesus. He's talking about Jesus, and in John 1:14, he writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word, dwelt among us, that is the Greek kind of significant phrase that matches God in Exodus saying, I'm going to dwell in your midst. We can literally say that Jesus tabernacled with us. That is what that term means. So Jesus now becomes the hotspot, the place where heaven and earth overlap, where God's spirit dwells with his people. And it's not just John who described Jesus as the temple. Jesus himself referred to his body as the temple. In the second chapter of John, we find Jesus at the temple. He goes into the outer courtyard and he sees just the corruption that has taken place. He sees the money changers and people being taken advantage of. And in his holy and righteous anger, Jesus clears the courtyard. And the Jewish leaders are like, who are you? Like, what authority do you have to do this? You need to give us a sign. Listen to how Jesus answers them. This is John uh, chapter 2, verse 19 to 22. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus was referring to his own body as the temple, the place where God's presence would dwell. And this is really, really important because unlike the tabernacle and the first temple, Jesus provided complete access to the very center of God's presence. If you think back to that chart that I showed you a little bit ago about the physical design of the tabernacle and the temple, at the center of the temple was the most holy place, the holy of holies. And that's where God's presence resided. That was the hot spot as the Israelites understood it. I want to read you some verses out of Hebrews 9 that explain why this matters and why Jesus is greater than the temple. This is Hebrews 9, 7 and 8. But only the high priest ever entered the most holy place and only once a year. 
And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open, as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. So access to God's presence was limited. It was not freely open and accessible to his people. Now, think about the life of Jesus. Fast forward, if you know the story of Jesus, he lived, he served, he told people, he showed people what God was like, and ultimately, he died on the cross. He hung on the cross, and before his death, I want to read you the words that, that we have recorded for us in all three synoptic gospels. We're going to look at this out of uh, the gospel of Mark, though. This is verse 37 and 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, if you don't have a reference point for the significance of the curtain, then you might just breeze right over this detail that we're given. But if you understand that the curtain separated the most holy place from the rest of the tabernacle in the temple, the curtain provided very limited access for just the high priest one time a year to enter into that space. And yet at the death of Jesus, that curtain is torn in two. Hebrews chapter 10 goes on to bring more clarity to what this means for us. This is verses 19 and 20. And now we are brothers and sisters in God's family because of the blood of Jesus and he welcomes us to come into the most holy sanctuary in the heavenly realm, into the most holy place, boldly and without hesitation. For he has dedicated a new, life-giving way for us to approach God. For just as the veil was torn in two, Jesus' body was torn open to give us free and fresh access to him. This is unbelievable. This kind of access to the presence of God had never been experienced before. And yet, it was the very thing that all of the rituals and the, the law and the worship practices represented by the tabernacle in the temple, they all pointed to the ultimate hope that would be fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And now, because of him, because of what he did, we have full and free access to God's presence. This is unbelievable, and it has major implications for each one of us and for us as a church body, because the church is the new temple. After Jesus ushers in the new covenant, the church becomes the new temple. We see this in a few different ways, but I want to begin with the day of Pentecost, after Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus met with his disciples. He appeared to huge numbers of people as in his resurrected form. And he told the disciples, I want you to stay here in Jerusalem till the helper comes. Just hang out. I'm going, I'm going to send back to the Father. You guys stay here. Wait for further instructions, kind of. And I want to pick up Acts chapter 2. We're just going to look at verses 1 to 4 that are talking about what happened on the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, 
and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Pause right there. A mighty rushing wind or storm or cloud. Where else have we seen an image like this? If you go back and you think about the biblical narrative up to this point, you can pinpoint several several different places. The wind is what cleared the water after the flood in Genesis 6. It was a cloud and a storm and lightning that was on top of Mount Sinai that represented the glory and the presence of God. So when we read this, we're like, that's weird. That's a weird detail. But for the early Christians who were Jewish, they didn't miss the significance of this temple language about the glory of God. So the rushing wind represents the glory of God. Let's keep reading. This is verse 3 now. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, sounds weird to us. We're like, tongues of fire? Like, what does that even mean? But to the early Jewish Christians, this is clear temple imagery. God in a cloud of fire by night was over the tabernacle, right? God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Fire represents God's presence in the tabernacle and in the temple. The sacrifices that were offered, there was always fire burning that represented God's presence. And now to see this image of flames, not in one localized place, but over each one of the followers of Jesus sitting in that room, This is a new thing that's happening. Jesus has ushered in a new thing where now the church is the new temple. We become the sacred place where heaven and earth overlap and where God's spirit dwells with his people. We all together are the temple. This language, this temple language describing the followers of Jesus is used throughout the New Testament letters, especially by Paul, but not only by Paul. And I want to read you out of Ephesians 2. This is verses 19 to 22. And Paul is talking about the church. This is what he says. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Listen to those terms again in the same way that God told Moses, build me a holy sanctuary because I'm going to dwell in your midst, right? And then Jesus came And John tells us it's the word who became flesh to dwell among us. And now here we're being told you are being built into God's holy temple and you will be a dwelling place for his spirit. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, this language continues to be used by Paul. And he says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, in English, we only have one word for you. It doesn't matter if we're using you singularly or in the plural form. But in the Greek, there's actually two different words for you singular and you plural. And Paul, in this verse, all three yous are in the plural form. Do you not know that you all, that we all, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in all of us. That's what Paul is saying. 
And this has huge implications for us as a church. We're gonna get into those in just a minute. But before we do, remember when I was talking about the role of Adam and Eve and the role of the priests and how there's a lot of similarities between them? This isn't in your notes, but I wanna point it out to you because in the new covenant, when the church is the new temple, we are now the priesthood, me and you. 1 Peter 2.9 says, For you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, this is important, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. In the same way that Adam and Eve represented creation before God and God to creation, in the same way that the priests represented God to the people and the people before God, we now fill that role. We get to show people the goodness of God. We are the place where God's spirit dwells. We are the vehicle that God is choosing to use to bring the gospel to the entire world. That's what the church is, and it's not an individual endeavor. In our Western mind, we are individualistic thinkers, and there are some good things about that. But when we read these verses, we're usually thinking just about ourselves, and it does have implications for how we live individually, absolutely. But the context that Paul is writing these in is not to an individual person. It's to us to this local church body, Innovation Church in 2022 in Westminster, Colorado. So what does this mean for us? How should we live? How do we practically apply this? There's three kind of call to action points that I see in the verses that we've looked at today and in understanding the tabernacle and the temple as foreshadowing what Jesus was coming to do and the birth of the church and the way that he operates in the world today through his church. And the first one is that we need to strive for unity. Strive for unity. I think we are living in probably the most divisive time that I've ever experienced in my 40 years. It's really, really difficult to love and get along with people that you disagree with right now. Not, not just here, but in our culture as a whole. We are so divided, and it leaks into the church. Now, I'm not talking about big issues. There's definitely times when we have to put, you know, put a stake in the sand and stand up. But so often, what happens in the church is the result of differences of opinion, of preferences, of secondary theological issues that people disagree on. And that is never a reason for us to divide. We need to strive for unity. In that verse, 1 Corinthians 3.16 that I just read, when Paul was telling the church at Corinth, you all are the temple of God. You all are the place his Holy Spirit dwells. The context of that verse is that Paul was actually rebuking the church because they had all this infighting going on. Some of them liked Apollos and some of them liked Paul and they disagreed about a whole bunch of things and they were on the point of dividing. And Paul says, no, don't you know? You are the temple of God. You can't divide. You must strive for unity. When I was 20, I moved to Scotland and I spent a year um, working for a church in Scotland and I got to do a lot of different ministry things while I was there. 
And one of the things that I did is every week I would go to the local high school and run a group for the Christian kids who were at the local high school and anybody else who wanted to join us. And because it was a school, we had to have a teacher sponsor our group. So there was one teacher at the school who was a Christian and willing to sponsor our little group. Well, one day I'm sitting in the classroom during their lunchtime, we're having a conversation and the teacher and I got into a little bit of a disagreement about a very, very, very secondary theological issue. And I being 20 and full of zeal and not full of a lot of knowledge was convinced that I was right. Just sure that I was right. And I told her, oh, well, Grant, that's the pastor of the church I was working with. Grant agrees with me too. Left the school. That night I was meeting with Grant. We were going over things for the week that was coming up. And I began to tell him about the conversation that I had with this teacher. And he very gently was like, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't the spirit. That wasn't God. That wasn't a good representation of God. And pointed me to this verse. I want to read it to you. This is Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 4. Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Okay, what does that mean? What does a life worthy of my calling look like? Paul's about to tell us. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. I know in that moment with that teacher, I was not being humble and gentle. Top of mind for me was being right. It wasn't walking in love and unity and allowing peace to bind us together. And I think all of us are sometimes guilty of that exact same thing. What would church look like if we all did this? What would it look like if we were marked by humility and gentleness and love, that we were constantly making room for one another's faults, for one another's differences of opinion? What would it look like? It would look a lot more like Jesus. I know that for sure. So that's the first call to action. Let's strive for unity. Second, let's live in community. We were created for community. And right now, especially, I think with technology and social media, it's really easy to pull out of our actual lives and have our only connections be digital connections. But that's not what's best for us. That's not how God designed us. He designed us to live in community. Romans 12, verse 4 and 5 says, Just as our bodies have many parts, and each part has a special function, so it is with the body of Christ. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. I love that line. We all belong to each other. A pinky finger disconnected from the body is really of no use. But you know what? A brain that's not connected to our nervous system and our cardiovascular system, it's just a lump of gray matter, right? We need each other. We are only effective when we are living in community with one another, caring for one another, and taking seriously that we belong to each other. Janelle Applegate is one of my best friends, and before she had ever met Scott, before she knew Jesus, she was in a really difficult season of life. 
and she, she didn't know Jesus, but her sister, Jill, was following Jesus. She was a Christian, and she had been praying for Janelle. She invited Janelle to church and to Bible study, and Janelle was just like, I don't, I don't know about it. You know, she kind of kept her distance a little bit. But then in this difficult season of life, Janelle told Jill she needed to move, and she needed to move quickly from one house to another, and she told her sister, well, I think I'm just going to hire movers. I, I don't know what else to do. I think I'm just going to hire movers. And Jill and Jill's husband, Eric, said, no, absolutely not. You are not hiring movers. And Janelle was like, I, I can't do it on my own. I don't have enough people who could come and help. And Jill said, don't worry about it. Do not worry about it. We will be there at 8 a.m. on Saturday, and we will move you. So Saturday morning rolls around. 8 a.m. comes, and all these people who have never met Janelle, who have no, there's no benefit to them in being there, show up. They get her entire house packed, loaded onto the moving truck. They head to the new house. Janelle follows the moving truck. By the time she gets there, her new house is already full of women she's never met, unpacking her kitchen, unpacking her towels. And she was like, who does this? Who does this? Janelle experienced the goodness of God through the community of believers that her sister was a part of. And that was a turning point in Janelle's life. Her life took a completely different trajectory after that moment because she experienced the reality of the gospel through the community of the church. And that is why we are called to live in community. We provide a lot of opportunities for community here at Novation. We have different events, we have home groups, we have core groups, we have men's and women's studies. We want you to find community here. But we can only go so far. Some of it has to be you taking that step, being a little bit uncomfortable, reaching out, getting to know some people, because you guys were made to live in community. And then lastly, we must participate in the church. Remember, the church it's the place where heaven and earth overlap, where God's spirit dwells with his people. It's what the tabernacle and the temple were pointing towards. And because of Jesus, we have full access to God's presence, to God's spirit. And we are told that every single one of us has been gifted in some way for the good of everybody around us. Every single one of us has a gift. It's really easy to just be a spectator or an observer to come and to stay on the sidelines. But I wanna invite you today, don't sit on the sidelines, get in the game. We need you, the church needs you. God has a purpose for you and you alone. He has gifted you in a unique way to serve the people in our church body, in our community, and to use us, every one of us together, to show people the goodness of God to show people who he is and to invite them to experience the gospel and the hope and the freedom that we have in Jesus. So don't get caught up looking around and being like, well, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I have a gift. I, I'm not gifted like that person or I can't really do that or I don't know how to serve in the AV booth. God has given you a gift and it's up to you to begin to participate with him and use your gift. You will be most satisfied. You will live the most abundant life that Jesus promises when you are using the gifts that God gave you in community with the local church, praising and worshiping and walking with Jesus day by day. 1 Corinthians 12, verse four to seven 
says there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit gives them. There are different ways of serving, but the same Lord is served. There are different abilities to perform service, but the same God gives ability to all for their particular service. The spirit's presence is shown in some way in each person for the good of all. The Spirit's presence is shown in some way in every one of us for the good of all. So join a home group and use your gift of encouragement. Sign up to bring a meal to somebody and use the gift that God's given you to make food for somebody else. Get on your knees and pray for that person that you know is struggling and use your gift of prayer. There are so many different ways to serve and to be part of the church body, and every single one of them matters. Every single one of them is important. What I want to do as we go back into worship, we are going to sing together, All Hail King Jesus, because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and before him every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, and we get to be part of his redemption story in the world around us. I want to read you Hebrews. I'm going to read you a selection of verses out of Hebrews chapter 10, because Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 do an incredible job of unpacking the significance of the tabernacle and helping us see how it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. I want to read these words to you, then we're going to go back into worship, and I just want to invite you to praise the King. Let's worship Jesus together. The old system of living under the law presented us with only a faint shadow, a crude outline of the reality of the wonderful blessings to come. Even with its steady stream of sacrifices offered year after year, there was still nothing that could make our hearts perfect before God. And then Jesus said, God, I will be the one to go and do your will. So by being the sacrifice that removes sin, he abolished animal sacrifices and replaced that entire system with the new covenant. And by this one perfect sacrifice, he made us perfectly holy and complete for all time. So now, wrap your hearts tightly around the hope that lives within us, knowing that God always keeps his promises Discover creative ways to encourage others and to motivate them toward acts of compassion, doing beautiful works as expressions of love. This is not the time to pull away and neglect meeting together, as some have formed the habit of doing. In fact, we should come together even more frequently, eager to encourage and urge each other onward as we anticipate that day dawning. We can walk in full confidence we can hold on to hope knowing that Jesus is faithful, that he will keep his promises. We can encourage each other to live wholeheartedly, to show up and live out the purpose that God has designed for you from before the foundations of the world. And we can lean in to one another. We can commit to being the temple where people can experience the space where God and people overlap where his presence dwells with us and in us and through us for the glory of God. Let's stand up and worship together.
Sacrifice was made as the heavens Yeah. 
Jesus, thank you for your life, for your death, for your resurrection, for your victory. Thank you that you have called us to participate with you, that we have the joy and the privilege of showing the world what you're like, of being people who stand up and proclaim you as Lord and King, that we find our ultimate hope and joy in following you and serving you of walking with you day by day. God, as we leave today, I pray that our hearts would be full and encouraged, that we would leave committed to walking in love, to walking in the spirit, to using our gifts for the good of the world around us. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.